0: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. Why was the CIA formed? Who were the key players in the agency's history? And what were some of its most significant scandals? This year marks 75 years since the United States Central Intelligence Agency was first formed. And so that's what we're looking at for today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode. Answering your questions on the CIA was Professor Rodri Jeffries-Jones, a historian and the author of A Question of Standing, The History of the CIA. And Rodri spoke to Eleanor Evans. Thank you so much, Rodri, for joining us today.
3: My pleasure.
4: And before we begin, I hope we could start by hearing from you on your new book, A Question of Standing, The History of the CIA. Um, Can you talk to us about your experience in talking about um, these intelligence agencies and how you came to write this book?
3: Well, I've been interested in the subject for a long time uh, now. It started when I was uh, researching for my PhD, My PhD was on industrial relations and especially violence in the United States. And I found that uh, private detective agencies played a large part in the story. Friends of mine told me that uh, my research on the whole was pretty boring, but the one interesting thing was my work on private uh, detectives. Then someone pointed out that there was an interesting archive in Yale University in the Sterling Library about Somerset Maugham, the uh, English novelist who actually worked for both British and American intelligence in the First World War. And I started to write uh, an article about him. And at that point, the great uh, intelligence scandal of the 1970s broke, and they decided to develop that uh, into a book at that point. But since then, a great deal has happened, and I've tried to keep up as best I can with intelligence developments and... uh, Oxford University Press offered me a a contract to write uh, a history of the CIA, which would come out in time for the 75th anniversary of the agency's founding
4: Wonderful. So uh, that is setting the basis for our discussion today. And as always, we're going to be taking some popular search queries along with some listener questions. So thank you to everyone who's taken the time to submit a question for this episode. We'll try and get through as many as we can, as always. So we'll start, Rodri, with a popular search question, um, which was what was the CIA before it became the CIA?
3: Well, the CIA had uh, antecedents. In the First World War, there was an, uh, an organization that's nobody's ever heard of. And therefore, it was a great success as an intelligence agency because they are supposed to be secrets. It was called U1. The U came from the Under Secretary of State's office in, uh, in Washington. And what this agency did was to coordinate and analyze information from different sources. It also ran a few agents of its own, I've already mentioned uh, Somerset Maugham as being one of them. There was another one called uh, Voska, who worked in Czechoslovakia. And the Americans began to develop uh, a capability, intelligence capability, in East Central Europe, which the British didn't have. So they were able to complement some of the work that we were doing uh, in in Europe in in the First World War. So that's U1. Uh, then I think the next organization one would look at would be the FBI. The uh, FBI at the end of the 1930s was really the only agency in America with any kind of uh, coordinated intelligence capability. And President Franklin D. Roosevelt, as the crisis developed in Europe, began to rely on the FBI more and more for the centralization of intelligence. And Although the FBI operated domestically, he gave the entire uh, subcontinent of South America to the FBI as its province, and it developed agents uh, throughout the uh, Western Hemisphere. So that's uh, an important antecedent. Then there was uh, an agency in the Second World War called OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, which is quite a famous Um, agency, although one could regard it as a confidence trick because it didn't do very much. It did develop, though, a research and analysis organization, which is very large, produced some excellent reports. Nobody listened to them at the time, but it formed the basis of an organization called ONE, uh, the Office of National Estimates, which was part of the CIA once the CIA had been established. Immediately after the war, The OSS was uh, dissolved and Truman uh, authorised the creation of an interim agency called the Central Intelligence Group. And that was the bureaucratic foundation for the CIA when the CIA was established eventually in 1947.
4: And so how did all of these uh, various groups then come to coalesce under under President Truman's presidency um, into the CIA?
3: The, uh, there was a huge uh, debate on that uh, on that subject, and uh, there were power struggles going on in the in the background. William Donovan, who had been the director of the OSS, very much wanted to continue in in that role, uh, and he had a huge influence in the creation of the CIA. The CIA has uh, a special award named for him to the present day, so he's just still regarded as, a, as, as an icon from this period. But uh, President Truman, who had succeeded uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt in 1945 when Roosevelt died in office, Truman uh, was not keen on Donovan. They had a long history of um, uh, mutual distrust in the First World War. Donovan had uh, been in charge of a unit called the Fighting Irish fighting on the Western Front, and Truman had been in charge of an artillery unit which accidentally bombarded Donovan's unit. So they didn't get on on well. Truman regarded him as a chancellor. uh, There was a family feud going on between them because Donovan was supposedly having an affair with Truman's uh, daughter-in-law. Another figure in the background was Hoover, who was determined to develop his foreign capability and uh, be in charge of central intelligence. But Hoover was widely distrusted uh, in America because people thought he was trying to establish an American Gestapo.
4: We should probably say, Roger, this is J. Edgar Hoover, is it?
3: This is J. Edgar Hoover (laughs) of the FBI. That's right, yes. And people distrusted him because they thought he was uh, establishing an American Gestapo and Truman shared that view. So those are two possibilities that were uh, rejected. And uh, Truman really went back to the foundations of uh, central uh, bureaucratic intelligence, which were to be found in the central intelligence group immediately preceding the CIA. And before that, as I mentioned, you won in the First World War.
4: So there seems a lot of um, conflicting personalities and even conflicting interests in those early days. What then were sort of the aims and roles of the CIA as as Many people saw them in the earliest days.
3: Well, there there were two main motives behind the creation of the CIA. One of them is related to Pearl Harbor, uh, the attack which caught America by surprise. And if you look at the congressional hearings, there were open congressional hearings on the legislation that created the CIA. If you look at the debate in those hearings, uh, they are concerned with a non-repetition of Pearl Harbor and the avoidance of any future surprise attack. On the other hand, Truman was much more keen on countering the Soviet threats. He was a very early Cold Warrior, and the very first instruction he gave to the Central Intelligence Group was to counter counter the the Soviet threats. And this really came to be the dominant role of the CIA, but with the understanding also that it was supposed to guard against any future unpleasant surprises
4: could we say a little more then about that Truman doctrine what did that that what did that really mean for America's foreign policy
3: well the the Truman uh, doctrine was uh, enunciated in the wake of British withdrawal because Britain was going broke British withdrawal from the uh, civil war in in Greece and British withdrawal of support for Turkey where, in both cases, there was a fear that the Communist Party was uh, making uh, advances. So essentially, uh, the, the, at uh, this point, uh, Winston Churchill made his fav- famous speech about an iron curtain descending on Europe. But who who is going to uh, finance the efforts to frustrate the advance of the communists? The British were not keen because we had spent so much money on the war and uh, our, uh, one of our main priorities was defending the empire rather than uh, re- repelling the tide of uh, communism in Europe. So America stepped into the breach and the, and the Truman Doctrine, as, an, as enunciated by uh, the president, at first uh, stated that uh, the United States would come to the aid of uh, Greece and, and of Turkey. But then it was uh, expanded to mean that America would support the anti-communist uh, cause uh, anywhere in Europe.
4: I see. So then how do we see that playing out in the CIA's early days?
3: Well, in the CIA's uh, early days, the agency had uh, two kinds of mission. One of them was the intelligence mission, which is pretty uh, uncontroversial. Everybody agreed it should have that. So the CIA was to keep an eye on the uh, way in which the Soviet Union was developing as as a threat to Western democracy. So, for example, it was meant to predict when the uh, Soviets were exploding their uh, first uh, atomic device, which they did in 1949. The CIA was two years out of Kist with that. Uh, They didn't think it would happen so early. But more successfully, they were able to uh, estimate what kind of a threat uh, American bombers placed to Western countries, what kind of a threat later on the uh, missiles that the Soviet Union had would would pose, what kind of threat they would pose uh, for the West. The second uh, activity of the uh, CIA, though one could question whether it was uh, really part of its uh, mission, was to engage in covert operations aimed again at the same objective, which was to frustrate the threats posed by the communists to prevent... uh, as they stated it, uh, governments from being taken over by communists, not just in Europe, but throughout the world.
4: I think I skipped his head a bit there, Rodri, so we might just go back for one second. I wonder if we can hear from you on um, the, 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 the moment that the CIA was established, how well known was it, how well was that communicated, how many people knew about it?
3: Uh, well, that's uh, an interesting question, because at the time of its creation, everybody knew that the CIA was being created. The act was part of the National Security Act of 1947, which also established the Department of Defense, unified the armed forces, and created the the U.S. Air Force, which had previously been a branch of the the U.S. Army. So this was a major debate in Congress. There was uh, discussion of it in, in the newspapers, widespread discussion in the newspapers. Uh, so the answer to the question, who knew about the creation of the CIA, was everybody. And uh, that is a distinguishing feature. No other country had had a democratically established uh, intelligence agency, not just uh, in the Eastern Euro- Europe, which, of course, are autocracy is uh, characterized by un- uniform secrecy, but also in Western countries, even in Scandinavia, the Scandinavian countries had a long tradition back to the 18th century of open governments. But even they did not have a democratically sanctioned intelligence agency. And this is very significant because it gave the CIA enormous uh, authority in its, uh, in its work.
4: And can you take us then into a few of the key figures in these early days? Who were the people who were taking on this remit?
3: Well, I think that uh, I, I mentioned there were uh, shadowy figures in the background. William Donovan and J. uh, Edgar Hoover. But uh, if you're looking at the CIA uh, itself, one of the influential figures was George Kennan. George Kennan was a member of the State Department who worked in the U.S. Embassy in in Moscow and who wrote a a long telegram, as as it was called, a famous um, analysis of what uh, the Soviet problem was and what the intentions of the Soviet Union were, and recommending that uh, the United States should um, not overreact, but should nevertheless uh, be very firm in its treatments, f- firm and unyielding in its treatments of the Soviet Union. Now, uh, Kennan was very much in favor of the CIA, not only because of its uh, uh, strictly intelligence mission, but also because of its covert operational mission. He was, he was keen on that. And for such uh, an authority in the State Department's, to give his blessing was uh, was important because the relationship between foreign officers and spies is always uh, a, a difficult one uh, foreign officers including the state department don't like to be have their images contaminated by any association with uh, daring do and dirty tricks so the backing of kennan and his recommendations counted for a great deal and how to explain why its the, the agency developed its covert operational capability Um, And another figure I think one would look at is uh, Alan Dulles, who served uh, uh, for a long term as the director of the agency between uh, 1953 and uh, 1961. And he was a a, a person who, again, uh, resolved the potential difficulty with the Department of State because his brother, John Foster Dulles, was Secretary of State. And so there was a a period of a minimal conflict there between the, the, the diplomats and the and the spies,
4: and so with Kennan and Dulles. Then there's plenty of, more on them in, in your book, um, and I'm sure they'll crop up again in our discussions. What sort of intelligence and work in the earliest days was the CIA conducting, and how would you say it was su- successful in those missions?
3: I think that the mission of uh, overriding importance was its uh, brief to keep an eye on the on the Soviet Union. And the great achievements of the CIA was to speak with uh, an informed and reasonable voice about the precise nature of the threats posed by Moscow. Uh, Now, uh, in the 1950s, it was a very uh, uh, dangerous period. The Soviet Union had developed its own atomic weapons. It had developed long-range bombers which could deliver those weapons, and towards the end of the decade, was developing intercontinental ballistic missiles, which were able to develop uh, nuclear weapons. Now, in the armed services, the uh, leaders of the Army, Navy, and Air Force perceived a great opportunity here, which was to uh, stress the Soviet threat in order that they might get more tanks and airplanes and ships out of Congress. So there was a disposition on the part of the intelligence agencies of the armed services to exaggerate the Soviet threat, which meant more toys for the soldiers, more promotions for the generals, and so on. And here, the civilian nature of the CIA, Arne Dulles was a a civilian who served in the State Department and had been, in fact, a secret agent way back in the First World World War as well as in the Second World War. Arne Dulles uh, was a civilian and took um, a more... um, objective view of these matters, and through sophisticated means, the CIA was able to bring the, uh, uh, the Soviet threats into proportion. For example, they studied the Soviet economy, and while uh, they conceded that the economy was expanding by leaps and bounds, as one would expect in a developing country, it was incapable of supporting that number of bombers that number of missiles, as claimed by the armed forces. Now, here the CIA was fortunate in that it had not only an ally in the Department of State, but also a sympathetic listener in President uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower, who, after all, had been commander of the armed forces, of the um, uh, allies' armed forces in the Second World War, and knew a thing or two uh, uh, about the military. And he could see right through the ambitions of his generals. And and in his farewell address, having served two terms as American president, he warned against the military-industrial complex, ambitious generals who got together with profiteering arms manufacturers in an effort to sway public opinion in favor of uh, escalating the arms race, essentially. So Eisenhower could see right through this, warned the nation against it as his parting shot to the nation. And he listened to Dulles. And I think that the restrained approach that uh, resulted in American national security policy contributed to the survival of uh, America, the survival of Russia, and the survival of mankind, to which one must add the codicil. This would not have been possible without complementary restraints on the part of the Soviet Union.
4: So is it fair to say then that the analysis of the CIA and its effectiveness then very much depends on the administration and how receptive it is to working with the agency?
3: Uh, Yes, it does. Um, And uh, presidents are varied in the degree of attention that they're willing to pay to complex uh, intelligence matters. From the early days, the CIA has uh, prepared... um, a presidential daily brief. It's the first thing the president looks at, looks at um, early in the morning over breakfast or before or after breakfast and comes in um, a, a leather-bound folder. And normally the director of the CIA will be there to explain to him. It's a, it's a short document, but nevertheless can be quite uh, complex in its uh, nature. So the degree of attention that presidents have actually paid to this briefing has varied according to the incumbents in the White House. And then, when it comes to reading really more complex analyses of the um, military threats in various countries, a lot of presidents have been short on patience because they've got other issues to discuss. And presidents worry mostly about domestic affairs and uh, what are the issues that are going to get them reelected the next time, and so on.
4: Okay, thank you. Well, I think that gives us a really um, interesting grounding then on on the CIA and its formation, as much as we can cover in 20 minutes. So if I can jump us into some listener questions. Um, We're skipping ahead a few years now. We've had plenty of questions on the Bay of Pigs. So what can you tell us on the Bay of Pigs, uh, the CIA's involvement, and what impact did the episode have on its reputation?
3: Well, the CIA was uh, in charge of the Operation to the abortive attempt to invade Cuba and remove Fidel Castro from office. Fidel Castro was uh, regarded as a, a communist uh, by the CIA and by both President uh, Eisenhower and President Kennedy. The, the scheme to invade uh, Cuba had been concocted under Eisenhower but it was uh, Kennedy who gave it the, uh, the, the, green, the green lights. Um, it was to be undertaken uh, in, in, in secret and it was to be presented as an uprising by the Cuban people uh, rather than as uh, an invasion orchestrated uh, by the United States. Although the people who did the invading were uh, Cuban exiles who'd been trained in, uh, in American bases. Now, the whole thing came and stuck, essentially, because um, the Cuban people uh, supported Castro very very strongly. And interestingly, the CIA had an analysis of Cuban opinion come to that conclusion. But in the CIA, the gung-ho element, led, it must be said, by Alan Dulles, who had performed an extra role in some respects in the 1950s, but nevertheless... He believed in the CIA's capability in regard to these uh, covert operations. And he could point to what he portrayed as successful operations in Iran in 1953, in Guatemala in 1954, when on both occasions the CIA had been involved in plots to overthrow democratically elected but uh, left-leaning uh, governments. So they went into the Cuban operation with conf- with some confidence. Uh, and, of course, it came unstuck. The uh, invading force was pinned to the shoreline at the Bay of Pigs and uh, had to uh, surrender and went down to ignominious defeat. It was a big setback for President uh, Kennedy's uh, prestige. For as Where the CIA was concerned... Um, it took uh, it took the blame for the uh, for the episode. Uh, John F. Kennedy explained to Anand Dulles that uh, under the British system, uh, the prime minister would have to resign if something happened like that. But in the American system, it is the job of the CIA's director to become the uh, uh, the, the, the surrogate, uh, the, the person who would, who would t- take the take the hits. Uh, so Dulles had to resign. Uh, Bissell, who was Richard Bissell, his lieutenant, who who had actually organized the Bay of Pigs operation, had had to resign. Now, the CIA, in government circles at this point, had the reputation of an agency which could do no wrong because they regarded the uh, Iran and Guatemalan episodes as great successes for American foreign policy. This is something I would uh, dispute because I think there were failures masquerading as successes. There were failures in the sense... That they solidified opinion against America, uh, against the United States in in Latin America, and therefore, in terms of soft diplomacy, were were disasters. But that was the uh, view inside governments that the CIA had lost its uh, reputation for in, in, in infallibility. The um, <coughs> CIA lost its uh, leadership, and uh, the. Instead of uh, Dulles, they appointed the man called John McCone to be director. John McCone was a technocrat, and expert on nuclear uh, matters. He'd been uh, director of the Atomic um, Energy uh, Administration earlier. And uh, a lot of people have argued that the nature of the leadership of the CIA changed. And instead of being mainly Ivy League, uh, humanities-educated people, uh, they became uh, instead uh, technocrats and a lot of people uh, uh, regretted that um the, the journalist um um Stuart Alsop said that the, the bold easterners had been replaced by uh, cautious technocrats and he didn't like that uh, at all whether that was in fact the case is open to question i think because uh, uh, one of my um PhD students, a uh, very gifted guy called uh, Patrick meskal did the computer analysis of CIA personnel and compared them with um, leading personnel in uh, other agencies. And he doesn't really see a big shift in terms of uh, middle range leadership in the CIA. He thinks they largely remained Ivy League after the Bay of Pigs debacle.
4: So what was driving that perception then? What do you credit that to?
3: I think that uh, the perception that the uh, CIA had changed was um, grasping at straws, looking at uh, an explanation of um, what happened thereafter, because the CIA thereafter didn't have quite such a glittering career as it had in the 1950s. Uh, it actually continued with its uh, covert operations. It, it learned no lesson if a lesson was to be uh, learned from the Bay of Pigs is still, over, for example, in Chile. It worked consistently to prevent the election of Salvador uh, Allende. And then, when Allende was um, deposed and murdered, ha- having been a- elected uh, Prime Minister of Chile, uh, the hand of the CIA can be seen there, if not directly, then at least it was uh, uh, influence that was uh, exerted in an approving manner. So the lesson, the lesson wasn't learned, but nevertheless, the air of invisibility had gone, and those who were Ivy League educated themselves uh, found it easy to say that that these um, uncouth people from west of the Appalachians who didn't go to a proper college, who were at fault.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
3: As you would expect, um, a secret agency is reluctant very often to make its uh, archives public and often for, for good reason.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.
2: That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. Well, this perhaps leads us on to a broad listener
4: question we've received from Denise Davidson on Twitter, who's asked, what is the strangest mission the CIA took or has taken against another country and the plot revealed either before or after it happened?
3: Well, I think I would go for um, the uh, decapillary plot against uh, Fidel Castro. Fidel Castro had a wonderful beard. Now, um, when John F. Kennedy had been elected president but had not yet taken office, he was then still a a senator. He had uh, a dinner party, and one of the people president at that party was Ian Fleming, the novelist, famous for inventing James Bond. And Kennedy turned... Kennedy... Well, at least Kennedy's publicity men said he was very keen on James Bond. Whether it's true or not is difficult to tell. But Kennedy anyway turned to Ian Fleming on this occasion and said, well, what would you do about this dreadful communist fellow, Castro, in Cuba? And uh, Fleming, tongue-in-cheek and thinking that the president was half in jest, suggested things like give him him, uh, an exploding cigar, um, make him tread on a poisoned clamshell, But the one that uh, really stands out, uh, in my view, if you're looking for strangeness, is the uh, plot to make his beard fall out, on the premise that in Latin America, machismo counts for a great deal, and uh, strongly associated with machismo, especially in those days, was having a large, bushy beard. And if Castro's beard were to fall out, then he would lose his appeal, the Cuban people would turn against him, and uh, democracy would be... Well, it was not restored because Cuba never was a democracy, but uh, America would have its way uh, in Cuba. So this was to be administered, um, the CIA had um, an organization called the um, Health Alteration Bureau, and they were developing various um, potions. And one of them was a thallium concoction, which was to be placed in the sandals of Fidel Castro, making his way into his bloodstream and making his hair fall out. Well, like many of the plots associated with either killing Castro or altering his, his health, it failed. But I think it gets top marks for strangeness. Another uh, example, um, though it's of uh, perhaps a less less amusing character, is that the... Uh, the CIA's um, hiring of a contract employee in the 1980s to write a manual for the Contra movement. The Contra movement was a right-wing movement in Nicaragua aiming to depose the elected left-wing government of that country. And the, the contract CIA employee wrote a manual for the Contra, including a paragraph on how to assassinate people on your own side and then lay the blame on the opposition in the interest of psychological warfare, I think that gets some marks for strangeness. Although it's a particularly uh, vicious example.
4: Indeed, plenty of episodes stranger than fiction there for sure. Um, and we've got another question about um, perhaps a, a well a sinister episode. Samantha Emmerich on Instagram has asked, "What can you tell us about MK Ultra?"
3: Well, MK Ultra was. Uh, It's associated with the Health Alteration Bureau, which I mentioned. And um, from 1953 on, uh, a man called Sidney Gottlieb was put in charge. It had its uh, origins in uh, the experiments by the Nazis and by the Japanese in um, mind control uh, drugs, and was a reaction also to the use of mind control uh, drugs by the communists, by the North Koreans, the Chinese, and the uh, and the Soviets in, in interrogating prisoners taken in the course of the Korean War. And the Americans thought, well, we'd better match this facility, uh, perhaps to use these drugs ourselves, or um, if not, perhaps to neutralize what the op- opposition is, is doing. And so they went ahead with that program. It uh, became uh, controversial. It was exposed in 1974, and supposedly uh, was brought to an end then. Um, uh, But it was controversial because um, they experimented with the drugs, including LSD, which by the 60s and 70s was a no-no drug embedded in American culture. They experimented with LSD on unwitting people. So they, they tried it out on some Canadians, And also they administered it to a man called John Olson, who was uh, an American government employee working on um, chemical warfare uh, uh, research. And uh, Olson, having been unwittingly subjected to LSD, uh, jumped out of a 13th floor window and committed suicide. And so um, if something happens to Americans, the the public gets very... uh, upset. You know, if it happens abroad, they're less upset. So when this Olson episode came to light in 1974, yes. that was quite a scandal.
4: Yes, I can begin to understand why. Um, and in terms of how things become public then, we've got a question here from AgroBiodiverse on Twitter, which perhaps talks more broadly about how people are, become aware of CIA operations and such. Do any CIA archives ever become public? Or how do they, I suppose?
3: As you would expect, um, a secret agency is reluctant very often to make its uh, archives public and often for for good reason. On the other hand, um, there's a tendency to use that excuse to keep secret uh, information which is not damaging to national security, but rather is just embarrassing either for the CIA or for politicians uh, of of the day. There's been an an awareness of this for a long time. And in the 1970s, the Freedom of Information Act was passed as one attempt to counter it. Then in the uh, late 1980s and early 1990s, there was a strong push for declassification because the classification of documents was getting out of hand with uh, trillions of documents being classified for no good reason. So the the senior Bush, George G.W. Bush, um, launched one initiative, and Clinton continued with it. There was a great agitation for it by Senator uh, Daniel Moynihan of uh, New York, who was um, uh, very concerned with CIA secrecy and actually wanted to abolish the CIA. He introduced uh, a bill which was defeated, aiming at the abolition of the CIA. And finally, in uh, just after be- assuming office, President Obama issued an executive order which is aimed at all uh, agencies, uh, saying that they should have a 10-year declassification rule. That is, in general, they should make available all documents once they were 10 years old. Then they were allowed to uh, release them after uh, 25 years if there were special reasons. And after 75 years, um, a special case had to be made for the detention of of secrecy. Now, that's... um, in principle, applies to the CIA. But when you look at the special exceptions, uh, these are to do with national security and the CIA, CIA is involved in national security. So in practice, uh, a lot of stuff uh, remains uh, un- under wraps. One of the problems confronting researchers into the history of the CIA is that, in some respects, it's, it is mandated by the Free of Information Act but uh, you have to know what question to ask. Uh, you've, got to know, you've got to have a hold. You've got to have the name of an individual or the name of an operation, specific dates. But as everything is secret, it's difficult to formulate a question, which can get a, a robust reply from freedom of information. You can't you know, send them an inquiry saying, tell us all your secrets for 1973. They say, oh, that's much too much. You know, we can't possibly do that.
4: I see. Well, perhaps that leads us quite nicely into another listener question Then we've got, which is, I imagine, quite tricky to answer. Um, Jeff Teravainen on Twitter has asked, what is the worst known scandal that the CIA has been able to cover up, I suppose, that we know
3: about? Well, I think um, it, you've got to ask yourself what do you mean by a scandal. A scandal uh, can be embarrassing, to a particular American administration or to the CIA. Um, scandal because perhaps it, it uh, involves suffering outside the United States, or um, a scandal that's uh, deeply offensive uh, by its nature. Now, in terms of embarrassment to the administration, I think that uh, perhaps the leading candidate is the revelation that this, the CIA had an assassination program that came to light in uh, 1974. Uh, CIA had planned the assassination of Patrice Lumumba in the Congo, and it would have gone ahead except that the Belgian special forces got there first and killed him. Numerous assassination attempts against uh, Castro. So these were um, attempts to kill prominent people. It was a particularly sensitive issue with the American public in 1974 because there had been political assassinations in the United States, including the assassination of Kennedy, of his brother Robert, of Martin Luther King, of Malcolm X. So assassination was a very, very sensitive subject and that's why uh, it really rocked the nation in uh, 1974 and 1975 is known as the Year of Intelligence because the newspapers talked of uh, little else. Uh, What's re? Rein- Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, if we look at uh, suffering abroad, I'd I'd point to the program of assassination in Indonesia in the 1960s, which really never featured prominently in American politics, because the people being assassinated were lower members of the Communist Party, or more frequently, relatively unimportant people who were alleged to have been associated with the Communist Party, because there's a lot of... uh, nasty informing going on. One million people, more than one million people were killed. And the CIA was at the root of it because they supplied the, they identified the people and they supplied the uh, uh, blueprints for the assassination program to the Indonesian governments uh, of of the day. The program was run by William Colby, who became director of the CIA and um, was responsible in the end for Uh, unveiling a lot of the CIA's secrets. And I think that he was a Catholic, with a Catholic conscience. His daughter committed suicide because she was so upset at what the CIA was doing. So that, in terms of suffering abroad, is a major scandal, deeply offensive by its nature. I don't think you can get much more deeply offensive than torturing people. And uh, that was a major issue in the presidency of the second Bush, George W. Bush, uh, in the... In the 2000s, it's involved uh, notoriously waterboarding um, people in order to make them divulge secrets real or imagined.
4: Well, yes. I, I mean, you mentioned the the, the terms of uh, the second George Bush there. Um, I wonder if we can go a little more into how that changed the agency that period. And we've got a question here from... Um, Instagram. How did the intelligence failure, this is the question, of of, of 9-11 change the agency?
3: The agency took the rap more than any other agency for 9-11 for having failed to predict the events and therefore failed to preempt uh, an event which took over 2,000 American lives. The failure harkens back to Pearl Harbor, one of the main reasons for the establishment of the CIA had been to prevent such uh, uh, surprise attacks. Whether, in fact, it was the case that the CIA was so heavily to blame, I think is open to question. It's open to serious question. There are other uh, parties involved, such as the FBI, the National Security Affairs Advisor, Condoleezza Rice. There are many people who were at fault over uh, 9-11. But... uh, Just as Kennedy had told Dulles the CIA has to take the rap on this occasion too, it was convenient to make a scapegoat of the CIA. And one um, consequence of this was the passage of the uh, 2004 Intelligence uh, Reform Act, which diminished the role of the CIA. Hitherto, the director of the CIA was also... director of the entire intelligence community, because there are many branches of intelligence outwith the the CIA. But the act of 2004 limited his activities to running the CIA itself, and they established uh, the office of national intelligence director. So there was a higher official who was in overall charge of intelligence. The CIA was stripped of its monopoly over drafting the presidential da- daily brief, first thing the president looks at in the morning, although it still contributed to it, and stripped of its prime responsibility for issuing uh, national intelligence estimates, which is the serious end of um, intelligence where they conclude what weaponry the Soviet Union has, is Iran developing uh, nuclear weapons, that kind of uh, estimate. So the CIA lost that uh, authority. At the same time, the CIA lost its standing because um, the administration went into privatization of the intelligence function in a major way, hiring private companies to do work on behalf of the government. And also, a lot of this responsibility for doing what the CIA had done previously, moved over to the Department of Defense, which meant that intelligence was more militarised than it had been when a purely civilian agency had been in charge.
4: And in terms of the, the scandal of, of torture that certainly became to sort of public, more public awareness in sort of the beginning of the century, wh- how do you think that's been mitigated or how, what steps were taken? Where do you think the standing on that um, issue is at the minute?
3: Well, the issue of torture uh, became toxic especially because there was uh, a significant effort to cover it up. And uh, to have a proper scandal, you must have a a cover-up as well. I mean, that is really offensive, I think, to the American uh, public. Torture itself um, ceased to exist when um, Obama became president. And his pick as the director of Uh, The CIA, John Brennan, was a very uh, highly respected individual, uh, didn't want to pursue those uh, practices anymore. That is not to say that um, Obama was overtaken by a a tide of uh, morality because the CIA still engaged in practices of which uh, many people disapproved, such as assassination by drone, the number of assassinations conducted by this method escalated dramatically under President Obama.
4: So there are plenty of um, very challenging episodes in this history um, that we've, we've just discussed, and thank you to everybody who submitted um, questions on those. We've got one now um, from your Nikon on Twitter, who's asked, altogether summed up, what positive impact did the CIA's work have for people in the US? I suppose that's a key point. Um, and was money spent to that end well invested, he asks.
3: Well, uh, I think um, the amount of money spent on intelligence looks very large. Um, I, I've got some figures. They're not all for the same year because um, there's still a great deal of reticence in issuing this uh, information on the other side of the Atlantic. But the intelligence budget appears to have reached um, a peak in 2010, which is the culmination of the Bush uh, budgets, uh, at uh, $80 billion. Uh, dollars spent on intelligence and uh, the cia got a good proportion of it uh, at 14.7 billion it compares with scotland's annual budget of 40 billion i don't know if that's a good comparison scotland's a small country and does not have to spend on uh, national defense but it gives you some idea of the scale and and one can understand why people ask these questions Um, but The defense budget in the United States as a whole is eight hundred billion. So the amount spent on intelligence, and and it's declined since the peak in two thousand and ten, is less than ten percent of that. Now, um, one can make a further comparison here. Friend George Washington was president. He's the first president of the United States. He had a uh, contingency fund. Uh, $40,000, which he could spend in an unvouched manner. He didn't have to account for it, running uh, spies. And that 40000 was 12% of the annual budget at that time. So you can't really argue that intelligence expenditure has run out of hand in modern times and that everything was hunky-dory uh, in the past. And you might ask the... Question: um, Is it as important uh, to be armed to the teeth as it is to be uh, intelligent and well informed? I think there's a strong case for being intelligent and uh, and, and well informed. As for what uh, the what America got for that money, which I think your questioner was asking, it got uh, national security on the one hand, defense against foreign foreign foes, a Soviet Union for many years, and uh, perhaps now China's more important. One might argue that um, the CIA was effective in other ways, sometimes surprisingly, for example, it had a policy in the 1950s called the opening to the left, where it supported parties that were to the left of center because it believed that was the best way of frustrating communism. Now, <clears throat> this is a very um, uh, controversial topic. The leader of the Labour Party, Hugh Gatesgrove, for example, benefited from CIA money. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It depends on how you think about these matters.
4: So we didn't have a listener question on this, but this is one from me. Um, reading your book and hearing your answers today, obviously we're hearing a lot of male names. Um, I wonder if you can give us a, um, a brief overview of any women in this history. When did the CIA start to employ women? When did they sort of become more, more prevalent in this history?
3: Well, the CIA was uh, an all male club. There's no question about that, which made it no different from other government organizations. It was upper class, it was WASP, White Anglo Saxon Protestant, upper class. But it has diversified enormously o- over the years. Uh, Gina Haspel, of course, is in a senior intelligence post at the, at, at, at the moment. But uh, beyond that, uh, the CIA has uh, diversified. Uh, you begin, for example, to have uh, Catholics working in the CIA from the 1960s on. Uh, William J. Casey, for example, was, uh, was a Catholic in the 1980s. Then there's a, a, a concerted uh, drive to improve the diversity in the agency in the uh, 1990s. That's when you have a significant increase in the n- number of women and uh, the number of minorities being employed. And it makes uh, very good sense because uh, for two reasons. First, you have to command the Conference of the American People. It was a democratically created agency, and it continues to need to appeal to the American public broadly. And if you represent the American public, you get a better chance of doing that. The Second, from the functional point of view, half the world's population is, is female, If you really want to find out what's going on in that half, then you have to have people working behind desks as analysts in Langley and also going out into the field and finding out what's happening. And the same goes for uh, minorities. America is blessed with ethnic minorities and should should give it a huge advantage as a spying organization, but it hasn't always exploited its minorities in the way in which it should.
4: Now we've we've talked um, a lot about the formation of the CIA. We've gone through some key questions about milestones in its history. Um, I wonder if we could wrap up by hearing from you, Rodri, on what your sense is of the, of its standing at this moment in current times.
3: Well, I think that its standing certainly uh, improved under President Obama. Then it took a great knock under President Trump. President Trump was chron- chronically uh, distrustful of the CIA and indeed uh, of the FBI. Uh, But um, I think that uh, opinion became uh, polarised. Those who thought that uh, Trump was not a very good thing thoroughly approved of the CIA's efforts in showing how the Russians had uh, suborned American politics, had interfered in Hillary Clinton's campaign to be president. I tried to swing the election of 2016 in Trump's failure. And of course, people who voted Democrats thought that was a great thing. But the CIA, CIA plunged in the view of Republicans. Only 4% of Republicans approved of the CIA at the height of that controversy immediately after the e- election. And that was a huge change because the, the CIA had been an icon because of its association with national security had been an icon of uh, conservative Republicans uh, up until then. So there's certainly an element of uh, instability in the CIA standing under Trump. Since then, I think that its um, standing has increased very considerably, not least uh, because it has uh, a director who's qualified in an outstanding way uh, to develop, to to deal with modern problems. Uh, This is William J. Burns who uh, was for a long time involved. He was a bachelor to Russia, and he really knows that uh, country uh, very well. He's highly qualified in his job. When it comes to the Ukraine, he is very well versed versed on what the Soviet capability may be, to a certain extent, what Putin's intentions are. And crucially, I think, he's well positioned to help to negotiate via the backdoor, backdoor diplomacy, a possible resolution to the problem and to make our world a little bit more, more stable. And I think it's significant here that his father who was a major general in the army and helped President Reagan to negotiate arms, and nego- arms reductions, significant arms reductions, with the, with the Soviet Union. So I think we have a right to expect great things of the CIA. I think its standing has improved... Many Republicans are still distrustful of it. But I think time will show that uh, it currently deserves more trust by the American people.
4: Interesting. Thank you very much for that perspective and for that contemporary context. Um, And I wonder if we can finish up up then, Rodri, on a final question from me, which is, what would you like our listeners to understand about the CIA in the 75th year of its existence?
3: I think that uh, I'd like people to understand that it's an agency which must be watched very carefully because of its transgressions, but which, on the other hand, is an agency which has at its core an intelligence mission which is absolutely essential to the survival of the United States and its allies.
4: Thank you very much, Rodri. It's been a real pleasure hearing from you today. Um, and we will leave
0: it there. Thank you very much, Jochen Do- Bauer. That was Rodri Jeffries-Jones, A Question of Standing, The History of the CIA. It's published by Oxford University Press and is out now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Newitt.